So today we're reading, uh, preaching from, he's preaching from Exodus 33, 12 to 23, and I'm reading from the NIV Bible. So Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, nor for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock when my glory passes by, will put you in the cleft of in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not, face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning, everybody. It is good to be here with you today. Now... I don't usually rip off other people's illustrations, but I couldn't help it this morning. Um, to set our context, another pastor uses this image from The Hobbit. J.R.R. Tolkien tells us about how Bilbo and a group of dwarves embarked on a journey to the Lonely Mountain. They were gonna face a dragon. Scary things ahead. Gandalf the Grey, the wise and powerful wizard, he initially accompanies them as their protector, guide, and sometimes their savior. However, Gandalf couldn't stay with them the entirety of the trip. They prepared to enter Mirkwood Forest, known to be perilous, and they were shocked to learn that Gandalf would not be with them. They were in dismay. They were in distress. Immediately, the, the dwarves um, were, were scared. Bilbo was even in tears. They had grown reliant on Gandalf's constant presence and assistance with them, despite uh, everything that lied ahead, lay ahead. Um, they were navigating the unknown territories that, that they had, or at least Bilbo had never been before. Um, in that context, losing your guide can be devastating. Now, where we are in scripture sounds a little like that. We have good news and bad news. The good news on the, the heels of what happened at um, Mount Sinai and the golden calf, the, the good news is that despite the grievous sin, um, 
Israel was still on track to the promised land. The bad news is that God wouldn't be going with them. So backtrack with me a little bit. We'll go to verse 2, same chapter, 33. God says, I will send an angel before you to drive out all these people. Go up to the land uh, flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. He told them to proceed. Go, go forward. You are still on track to go to the land, but look, I'm a holy God. You're stubborn people. With your idolatry, I mean, your future's not certain. I mean, hearing this, the people repented, so that's what happened next. Verses four to six. I'm not going to read it. Um, but the people repented. They took off their, their gold jewelry, their ornaments. These, these outward symbols connected to the idolatry of the golden calf. Um, and Moses, in the meantime, is setting up a meeting, a private meeting with God. Um, so we see that in verses 7 to the beginning of our passage. Now, the people we learn, once the pillar of cloud settled on this meeting place, the people were worshiping, they were praying, they were repentant. They saw God's glory, at least a glimpse of God's glory, come down in, the, in, that, in that cloud. Um, and they're wondering to themselves, what is gonna happen? Is this gonna be successful? Is God's negotiation with God going to amount to any change? Now the fate of Israel hinged on these very meetings. Now, as we get to our passage today, we see that we see a part of, it's a, it's a segment of that communication that Moses has with God. We see three, um, we see three prayers, prayer requests, intercessions, if you will. Um, and then we see three responses. God continues to speak in our, after our passage well into verse or well into chapter 34 uh, about how to proceed what to do next but this passage maybe this is a little bit like a pivotal decision making moment and the tone of it i think we need to see that is is described in verse 11. the lord would speak to moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend i mean that's the tone going into this meeting this is Moses approaching God like a person would approach a friend to have a conversation and, and, and actually to, to plea with this friend. So, so what does Moses ask God first? There, again, there are three intercessions, three requests. Let's read the first together in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you've found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses says, I got your message earlier. You're not going with us into the promised land. Israel's sin is too great, and you are too holy, but you told me that we were going to leave this place. Where am I supposed to go? You said I'll send an angel, but here's the thing. Where is this angel? I haven't heard from this angel. I don't know what this angel's name even is. 
You commissioned me to lead this, these people, but I'm all alone here. Then, to appeal to God's ear, Moses says that God knows his name. Now, I want to pause here, take a little detour. Um, from my study of, of Exodus, Numbers, elsewhere, I mean, Moses is not a word that comes out of the mouth of God, as written in Scripture. Scripture never records God saying, Moses, Moses, in the way that Jesus did to Saul of Tarsus. Instead, God often refers to Moses as you and my servant. And he speaks directly to him, though not by his name. The only instances in the Old Testament of God speaking someone's name are when God names them, as in Adam and Eve, or when God renames them, as in Sarah and Abraham. So, does this argument have merit? I want you to hold that in your mind for a second. The second question can be asked of Moses' second appeal. You have found favor with me. This also, I mean, chronologically speaking, up to this point, does not appear in Scripture. We read that Moses sought the favor of God. We read that Moses interceded on behalf of Israel, and God listened. But never does God appear like a genie in a bottle and say, you have found my favor. You get three wishes. Go ahead. Now make your requests. I mean, this encounter, in some ways, even though it's precipitated by this, this language of friendship, I think of this maybe as a more terrifying version of what Esther did in approaching the king um, on the basis of favor, right? Now, now, God does confirm what Moses is saying in verse 17, and we'll get there. Um, but what I'm going to suggest to you is that we don't have every communication between Moses and God written in Scripture, everything that transpired between them. We, there are a lot of things that happened to bring Moses to this point where he would consider God a friend and God would consider him a friend. And perhaps in the same way, there's a lot that has to happen to transform us in our prayer life to consider God personal there for us, listening, active, present. Now, in verse 11, I, I said that, we, we saw that Moses did approach God face to face, speak to him like a friend. And twice in scripture, we actually see how unique this was. In Numbers 12, God says, I usually, uh, I usually reveal myself to prophets in visions and dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. I mean, Aaron, Joshua, and Miriam are all said to have spoken with God as well. But interestingly, Moses was always there too. Deuteronomy, we read after the life of Moses, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. And that's interesting, isn't it? Secret meetings, intimate face-to-face -face conversations, as in friendship. So Moses continues his intercession. He says in verse 13, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Now Moses' plea here is don't depart from me. Don't leave, don't go, stay with me. I wanna know you. I want to never cease in finding favor with you. Keep revealing yourself to me. Now, maybe your ways, right? 
so teach me your ways. Maybe it's literal here, um, so not metaphorical, as in God's law, his character, his, his purposes. I mean, ways or path, they're the same word in Hebrew, derech, that uh, can be taken either metaphorically or literally in Scripture. Moses initially asks, who's going to lead us? Now he says, cause me to know your road. That's literally what it says. Cause me to know your road. I take this literally. Show me your next step. Be the guide. Show me where to set course. Direct my compass, literally. He makes a third appeal. Remember that this nation is your people. Israel's is, is yours. We belong to you. Um, God responds to this in verse 14 in a way that I think actually has to be spelled out uh, because we lose a little bit in translation. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence, my face, will go with you, singular, will go with you, Moses. My face will go with you, Moses, and I will give you, again, singular, I'll give you, Moses, rest. Moses appeals to God on the basis of favor. He's found with God, and God agrees. Yes, my face will go with you. I give you my word. Now, face is an interesting word, which we'll come back to a little bit. Um, it's translated my presence. Um, we'll go with you. My, in, in Scripture, face often signifies something really special, the immediate presence of God, an intimate, direct encounter. I mean, consider the blessing that we often close our service with. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to, gracious to you. May the Lord show you his face and bring you his peace. May the Lord's face shine upon you. May the Lord show his face to you. I mean, there's something about this word face, um, that constitutes favor and blessing, God's active involvement in our lives going well. But make no mistake, Moses is asking here for that face to go with Israel. And God comes very close to saying, no. Moses says, go with us. God says, I'll go with you. Moses seeks to mediate on, on Israel's behalf. He seeks to intercede. I mean, this is what intercessory prayer is after all. It's prayer that stands in the gap, requesting something on behalf of another. And he uses his special relationship with God to ask. So we'll pause there. That's the first segment of request. God says, or Moses says, go with us. And God says, I'll go with you. Let's read the second. Verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Now Moses' response would initially appear strange, especially in our English text, except that now we know that God came very close to denying his request. So Moses makes a bold, conditional, imperative statement of God. He says, if your face does not go with us, leave us here. There's no me and them. 
There's an us. I don't want to follow an angel, literally a messenger. Sending a messenger shows that, that, we, that you've departed from us. You're no longer with us. It puts further incredulity on my leadership. Ultimately, it tells the world that we're not your people. We want your face. We want direct encounter. We don't want to cease from being your people. Now, God responds very simply in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. So God confirms what what Moses appealed to him on the basis of in the first place. God's going to do this not because sending a messenger would have shown that, that he's departed from them, not because sending a messenger would put further incredulity on Moses' leadership, not because sending a messenger would tell the world that, that they are not his people. I'll do this very thing you've asked, God says, because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. I mean, what a thing to hear from the lips of God. I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. I mean, it reminds me of Jesus at his baptism. Um, He came out of the water, heaven was opened, a dove descended, and a voice from heaven said, this is my own beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I mean, Moses may have heard these words in his secret meetings with God. Um, Now God is saying these words, not simply to comfort or or give identity to Moses. He's he's doing this to, to articulate the reason why he's acting. I mean, there's a decisive turning moment happening right now, and it's because He says in verse 17, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Because is a very key word there. That's the reason motivating God's action. Now, I'm going to create a problem for us, which hopefully I don't leave unresolved by the end of the sermon. But here's the problem. I mean, the reason that God gave for sending an angel instead of his own presence, his own face earlier, was because Israel had erected for themselves a golden calf. God instructed many to, be, to, to die by the sword. He instructed many to, to die by a plague. He said many would be blotted out from his book. But then he said, and then he said, I won't go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you, Right? One commentator describes this, this act of grace, right, as God protecting his people from God himself. God's holy. The effect of sin is death. Now, it may seem harsh that the effect of sin is death because in our modern minds, I think we tend to diminish sin. Um, We see it as inevitable. We see it as childish rather than evil. We see it um, as a way that's inconsistent with the story of Scripture, right? In Scripture, where Death was grace in the Garden of Eden, where disobedience would mean eternal separation from God, the very definition of hell, where, in Scripture, discrete acts in the Old Testament lead directly to death, such as the sin of Achan, such as the rebellion of Korah, such as the the plague of the fiery serpents, such as the sin of Nadab and Abihu, such as the sin of Saul, I mean, where the sacrificial system was premised on animal death 
being necessary to come before God, where substitutionary death was a price, an atonement. I mean, this theme of sin and death underscores the gravity of Israel's rebellion, but it also raises the question about what changed for God, right? God was withdrawing his presence before as an act of grace, much like in the Garden of Eden. Um, Withdrawing his face before Israel was a gracious act. So what changed? Now we'll return to this later. Let's go to the third dialogue, the third petition, the third intercession. Moses says simply, now show me your glory. It's a personal request. Reveal your kavod. It's translated your abundance, your honor, your glory. Interestingly, the the Hebrew word um, for glory that, that gets translated into English means weight, heaviness. Show me your heaviness. I mean, glory has to do with weightiness. It's something that we can experience. And I don't know about you, um, but I feel it felt a, a heaviness. I mean, walking through some of the great European cathedrals, I mean, you experience something bigger than yourself. Um, also a feeling I associate with encountering God in worship is also a feeling that I have sensed in doing the work of ministry. Um, I like Moses' request. Is that a fair thing to say in a sermon? I like it um, because it asks for more than an intellectual encounter with God. I mean, in our inherited theological tradition, we tend to think about God in, in very doctrinal terms. Um, it, we, we see God, but it's, it's mediated through language. Um, and what Moses is asking for is not mediated through language. He says, show me the heaviness, show me your weight. Like, I wanna see. Um, he wants to encounter God relationally. Um, he wants to see God with his own eyes. Um, he wants this, though he may not truly understand that being favored by God, God being pleased with you is insufficient to truly encounter God. And so we see in verse 19, God saying, okay, but I've devised my own way to make this work, sort of. So let's read from 19, and actually let's just read to the end. And the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. God says, my goodness will pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And he says, but I can't let you see my face. I'm gonna protect you 
from the weight, the full weightiness of the weight of my glory, and I'll show you my back. This is, there's, there's a beauty in God's response here, um, which resolves for me the tension that's created by, the, by God's decisive turn um, in not doing what he planned. And putting, putting, he'd originally planned to put them in the hands of the messenger, which was in fact gracious, but he changed his mind. God says, I'm good. My very being is good. This is why we have, feel weight when we encounter God. We encounter something in God's creation. We even encounter uh, the image of God in, the, in, in others. We're encountering goodness, the foundation um, of, of, of what we know to be good and right and true is, is grounded in God's being. Um, we get a glimpse into the, uh, the, the, into what Moses experienced in that moment, um, into who God is. Right? God articulates his name, but I, I want you to see what would otherwise be a non sequitur after God articulates his name. Um, I want you to see that as an extension of God's name. Right? So names hold the significance in the Old Testament. I mean, God's name is actually self-defined. God tells us about his nature through his name. This is what he says in verse, well, it's 19, but... He says, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He goes on to define his name as, I will have compassion, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So what does the Lord's name mean but sovereign mercy, sovereign compassion? God's nature is that of the Lord embodying goodness and sovereign grace. That's who God is. And I wonder if the trans transformation in God's um, disposition, right, to lead Israel in Exodus 33:17, I wonder if it can be comprehended in the framework of, of divine sovereignty here. His mercy, his compassion, that's, that is divine sovereign grace. Verses two and three, which we opened our passage with, I mean, they point to God's righteousness. I mean, his righteous judgment, his supreme authority over all creation. He's the ruler. He possesses the authority to execute judgment on those who rebel against him. Now, God could have fulfilled his covenant promises without the Israelites, without the rest of them, just through Moses himself. Um, in fact, that is a dialogue God has with Moses. Moses acts as a mediator between God and his people. And that plays a pivotal role in this text here. In his intercession on behalf of Israel, it, it illustrates God's grace and it illustrates his use of intermediary means. God uses people who mediate. Um, I, as, as I'm thinking about it in this very moment, um, I mean, God's mercy is, is poured out um, not because of Moses' merit, but God's mercy 
flows out of his will, his decision. I choose mercy, God says. I choose compassion. Moses was not the perfect mediator. God's grace is not contingent on human merit, but it's rooted in God's own gracious character. I mean, despite the people's transgressions um, and God's initial judgment, he willingly extends mercy, which ultimately leads to his choice to continue working with Israel, all of Israel, not just Moses on this journey. Now, for me, that resolves a tension, this tension between the holiness of God's character and Israel, Israel's sinfulness. Um, the passage begins with an initial reluctance, which is a righteous reluctance that also points to God's compassion and mercy. And then we have Moses as the interceder, the one who's interceding. Moses appeals and God transforms, right? His, his, his judgment um, that, that he cannot go with Israel um, changes that into a promise of continued guidance, continued presence. But hear that, the Lord means sovereign grace, right? That's what the name of the Lord means. Now, the, the, this dialogue, it, it shows God's willingness to respond to intercession um, and the importance of seeking God's presence and his guidance, which, which I think is a lesson for us, right? This, this is a moment of intimacy. It's a moment of boldness, but also we have three examples of Moses interceding as the, as the one, the intermediary whom God responds to. Um, now, just as Moses acted as, as an intercessor between, the God, between God and the Israelites, Jesus serves as our ultimate intercessor. Now, I see this in two ways, and I'm going to Introduce the first way, which maybe is a little more common, and I'll leave us with something to ponder, which is maybe um, a little bit less common. I mean, Jesus is our, our intercessor in terms of our salvation. I mean, because of the consequences of, of, because the consequences of sin is death, I mean, Jesus sacrificed his own life. He died on a cross as an ultimate act of intercession to reconcile God with humanity. Um, and it provided a way for us to be saved from the consequences of our sin. Now, that's gonna sound familiar. I think that Jesus also serves as an intercessory in the realm of prayer. I mean, New Testament believers are encouraged to pray with the confidence that Jesus intercedes on our behalf before the Father, making our prayers, our petitions acceptable before God. Um, Jesus, I'll also say, helps us to encounter the weightiness of God in a way that does not crush us. I mean, the miracle of the, uh, the, the miracle, I mean, really, of Christmas is, is that Jesus became flesh, did not lose his divinity, and through him, we see the face of God. 
I mean, when we see Jesus, we see the very image of God. That's what we're told in the New Testament. His life, his teaching, his sacrificial death. Jesus reveals the nature, character, and love of God in a way that is accessible to humans. He embodies God's weight, his glory, his, his grace, his, the, the, his gracious name. And he mediates our connection to the Father allowing us to, to see glimpses of um, God's love and compassion and redemption. Um, in, in Jesus, we find the ultimate revelation of God's face, inviting us to experience the fullness of God's presence. Now, now Paul may have been pointing me to a different passage when we emailed earlier this week, but I was reading 1 John, and I, I came across a passage that I want to leave us with, which is perhaps a direct connection to, to our passage this morning. It's 1 John chapter 3, and it's verses 19 uh, to the end, which is 24. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in the presence of in, in his presence. So already, two things from our passage, God's promise of presence, God's promise of, re promise of rest. Whenever our, heart condemn, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our own hearts and he knows everything. Dear, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him everything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is what his commands, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another as he commanded us. Those, that, that, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, the, the, one of the tensions we see in scripture, and I think that is re resolved here, is, is the, the, the intangibility the inaccessibility, the transcendence of the face of God in the Old Testament, which I think that what, what we get when we, we see this New Testament passage that, that promises us that our prayers are answered and that we'll experience peace and rest is a twofold image of the face of God in Jesus Christ and the face of God in those around us. Now, I know that's an interesting place to land. Um, but I think what it tells us is that our spirituality is a lot more communal than sometimes we make it out to be. Um, it was for Moses. There was no me for Moses. There was only an us. I mean, the, the embodiment of, of him encountering the face of God is in, in the context of him acknowledging the face of God in Israel around him. And so we experience this invisible, intangible God, um, inaccessible, transcendent through the imminence of two things, the imminence of God in Christ uh, and the imminence of the face of God in those with whom he has put his image, which is you, me, your neighbor, those around us, which has got to inform our prayers, right? These prayers of intercession are not simply about our lives and the things that we want, but they're about, I mean, creation and being restored. They're about restoring the face of those 
whom society has taken the face from, for those whom have lost their faces, um, those who may experience uh, shame and humiliation from poverty, shame and humiliation from uh, mistakes they've made in the past. I mean, part of our job as Christians is, is to restore the face of God, the image of God in those around us. Um, and that's part of our mission, our calling. And, and I think that that is one of the connecting points between, I mean, our prayer, right? And, and, and the, the life that lives out of that prayer is, is that we encounter the face of God, which restores our face so that we can then honor and love and, and see the face of God in those around us. A lot of talk about face, but it all stems from the God who revealed his back and said that his name was gracious, God, sovereign Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are present with us. I thank you that you promise us rest. I thank you that you empower us through your spirit to obey. I thank you that you have promised to go with us to the very end of the age. And I pray that we would be a church that is not bold, that is, not, um, that, that is bold um, to see the face of God in those around us and to empower um, an us mentality where, where, where you are our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.